0: Good morning, everyone, and good morning to everyone who's at home sick, right? There seems to be a lot of sick people today, isn't there? Get your vitamin D and exercise and quit smoking and all that stuff. Acts chapter 18, that's where we're going to pick up, so you can turn there in your Bibles if you're not there already. Let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Bible, the very Word of God to us a lamp to our feet, and a light to our paths. Father, during these dark and uncertain times, I ask and pray that you would renew our conviction and our trust in your word as truth, your word that leads us to the truth. That's not a preposition or a proposition. It's a person, Jesus. And so would you now, by your spirit, renew our minds and conform us into the image of Christ. In your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 18. So, in case you didn't notice, we are picking back up again where we left off in Acts. We spent the Advent season looking at the prologue to John's gospel. Then, over Christmas, we looked at Luke 2. And then, last week, Brock looked at Psalm 1. So, now we're going to go through these remaining chapters of Acts, those will take us the next couple of months. And then if you want to start reading ahead, um, we're going to do a series through Ephesians. It's a good one, right? Yeah, I was talking to someone, I'm not going to expose them, but I said over dinner a little while ago, I'm like, what's the one book of the Bible you'd really love to hear preached? And they said Ephesians. Good thing they didn't say Lamentations. So as we're moving here into Acts 18, um, we are nearing the very end of Paul's second missionary journey. Look at verse 1. He has spent a few weeks in Athens. At the end of chapter 17, we see that he finishes his speech at the Areopagus. There are two converts, one named Dionysius, the other one named Damaris, a man and a woman. It's interesting to note that in chapter 17, half of a chapter is given to his couple of few weeks in Athens. While we notice that in chapter 18... About a half chapter is also given to a much longer stay in Corinth. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, this would have been obvious to the original audience, but it's something that we have to unpack because of the distance of time, space, and culture. Paul going from Athens to Corinth was a strategic move for the propagation of the gospel. Corinth was the place where um, goods would move through. Now, if you can picture Corinth, I wanted to put a map up and then I forgot, but maybe you have a map in your Bibles. So if you can picture Greece, you have Athens and then about 65 kilometers to the west, right on the narrow isthmus that connects mainland Greece to the Peloponnesus. I've lost you already. Do you know what I mean? There's, that's where Corinth was and is. It's right on that narrow isthmus. And so, I'm sure that Paul looked at that and thought, if goods and wares can move to either side of this narrow land bridge, to the sea and to the sea, if this can be a hub for merchant and trade, then so too can the gospel. Now look, friends, before we even get into our passage this morning, here we are in the new year, 2024. 2024. I'm hoping that as the kids go back to school this week, um, this time starts to feel less and less like the Twilight Zone, you know, that season in between Christmas and New Year's where you don't even know what day of the week it is. But as we're starting into this new year, here's an encouragement before we even get into the text. Paul was intentional. Paul was strategic in his plan for the propagation of the gospel. And so too should we be. I want you to consider that for a moment. Maybe your evangelism to your friends and family and neighbors has just been haphazard. You've been waiting for things to happen. Paul took the gospel to Corinth for strategic reasons. You too can be intentional and strategic in your evangelism. Why, it might begin with something simple. Maybe even this afternoon you'd go home and in a journal write out the names Of friends and family members that you want to lift before the Lord that they might be saved and then begin to intentionally pray for them and not only pray for them but pray that God would grant you the opportunities to share Jesus with them it's an amazing thing when you begin to pray that way it happens I promise you now I don't know if it's because God actually gives you more opportunities Or if in praying it, you just become more aware. I like to pray that God would give me opportunities to share the gospel, and then I follow it up with another prayer. I pray that God would make me a good steward of those opportunities and give me the courage to tell people about Jesus. Look, the encouragement here before we get into the text is simply this. Paul was intentional and strategic in the propagation of the gospel, and so too ought we. All right. want us to look at the passage this morning, we're going to look at three things in particular. The first thing is the gospel at work within uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the gospel at work in the Gentiles, and then the gospel at work in the state. So let's jump in. Look at verses 1 to 3. Paul arrives in Corinth from Athens. Now, Athens was the intellectual and cultural hub of the time. But Corinth was equally important as a city. If Athens was culture and academia. Then Corinth was trade and commerce. Now we learned in chapter 17 that Paul did not have much fruit in Athens. Do you remember that? Just those two converts who were named. But after his time in Corinth, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he must have been reflecting on that when he said, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. That was his experience in Athens. The gospel was foolishness to those who were perishing. And friends, it remains true today. So verse 1, he shakes off the Athenian dust from his sandals, he goes to Corinth. Verse 2, he arrives in Corinth and he meets up with two people named Priscilla and Aquila. That's right. Now we're told that Aquila and Priscilla are Jews. We're told in this biblical text that they were commanded to leave Rome, (laughs) commanded to leave Italy. And again, we have another moment in Scripture that would have been very obvious to the original audience, but we just need to unpack it a bit. How did that come about? Well, Roman historian Suetonius records that in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius instructed all of the Jews to leave Rome. He expelled the Jews from the city of Rome, and and Suetonius tells us why. Suetonius says that the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome by Claudius because of the disturbing, disrupting teachings of a Jew named Crestus. That's obvious that Suetonius simply spelled the name wrong, isn't it? It wasn't Crestus, but it was Christus, Jesus Christ. And so here in Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, we have Priscilla and Aquila, who are Jews, expelled from Italy, expelled from Rome. They were expelled under the great expulsion for on the teachings of Crestus. These guys had already heard the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Somehow the gospel had already reached Rome. That's interesting for Bible nerds and scholars because it helps us to date Paul's letter. We know then that um, when Paul arrived in Corinth, we can then connect those dots for the Corinthian correspondence. But it's interesting for so many more reasons. Look at verses 3 to 4. Priscilla and Aquila shared a common trade with Paul. They were tent makers. But far more importantly, they shared a deep conviction with Paul. What was that conviction? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That the Christ is Jesus. And so Paul arrives in Corinth. He finds these two Jews who've been expelled from Rome because of their faith in Christ. They share their deep conviction that Jesus is Lord, and they immediately get to work. Verse 4. They go to the synagogue every week trying to persuade the Jews that the Christ is Jesus. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. And I want you to picture this, if you will. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they've now picked up Aquila and Priscilla along the way. And they're preaching in the synagogues to the Jews. And and this must have been their message. The Crestus, the Christ, whose teachings have so radically flipped the center of the empire on its ear that the emperor threw us out of Rome. That Christ, he is Jesus. That was their message. That's one takeaway. I wanted you to imagine that. But I think another one is more personal and pointed. It's perhaps cautionary and hopeful to people like us. You see, Aquila and Priscilla were a particular type of person, they were, by any measure, religious, they were pious. They were probably hospitable and charitable and all of those good things. Their neighbors probably spoke well of them, even back in Rome. They were Jews. Everything about their life appeared good and godly. They went to church on Saturday, because they were Jews, right? Not Christians, but you know what I mean. They probably served in the Sunday school. But here's the truth that is implicit in this text. It's not explicit, it's implied. Even though they were Jews, even though they were behaviorally godly, they needed to be saved. They needed to be born again. Now look, perhaps that's you here this morning. You would say, yeah, D., I I come to church. I'm here every Sunday. I serve in different capacities. Well, here's the question from this text this morning. Do you know Jesus? Have you ever been saved? Have you ever repented and trusted that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 6. Paul is carrying out exactly this ministry in Corinth. He's going to the religious types, the Jews, the good guys, the pious ones. The ones who think that they have it all put together and he's preaching the gospel to them. And the Jews in Corinth, unlike Aquila and Priscilla, they reject the message. Look at verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. Friends, this is a warning that's intended to cut really close to the bone for people who come to church every Sunday. It's not enough just to be godly. It's not enough to come to church or to serve in different capacities or be charitable or hospitable or have people say, oh yeah, that's a really good guy or gal. You have to repent. You have to turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. All right, that's the gospel at work in Priscilla and Aquila. Let's now look at the gospel at work in the Gentiles. I want to just skip back to verse 5. So Silas and Timothy have now made this 65-kilometer, 40-mile journey from Athens to Corinth to meet up with Paul. What does it say in verse 5? It says that Paul was occupied with the Word. Now, if we read a few verses earlier, we find that he shared a common trade with Priscilla and Aquila of tent making. If we read the Corinthian correspondence, we know that during his time in Corinth, he actually had a day job. He was a tent maker. And yet, The assessment of Scripture is not that he occupied himself with tent making. It's that he occupied himself with the Word. Look, this is the primary principal occupation of every Christian man and woman. You may not be a vocational pastor. You may have another job or another profession. There are other things that you do. But those are things that you do. Your occupation is the word of God. Well, how do you give yourself to that occupation? Well, I want to suggest there are a few ways. The first thing to consider is to occupy yourself with the word of God for the good of your own soul. Here's another another good pastoral point as we head into a new year. 2024. You know, you take stock of the old year, you make plans and intentions about the new year, new year, new you, at least for the first two weeks. (laughs) I go to the gym, it's really busy right now, within a month it's going to be empty again. We all know how this goes. But here's one that you ought to stick with. Occupy yourself with the word of God for the good of your own soul. What that means is to give yourself to the study of the Bible. To study the Bible until your own spirit, your own soul, has been renewed and conformed into the image of Christ. Occupy yourself with the word of God. When you do that, that's when the goodness of the gospel will really take root in your life, in your home, and in your family. As you occupy yourself with the Word of God for the good of your own soul, that's when you will find the fear and anxiety-displacing truth of the Word of God at work. It's as you study God's Word and occupy yourself with it that the promises of God will become sweet and dear to you. And you'll know. That there may be a lot of forces and factors out in the world, but ultimately you are subject only to the sovereign, good, strong Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you occupy yourself with the word of God, and that's the result for your own soul. You also occupy yourself with the word of God for the sake of others. It's only when you give yourself to the word of God that you will be able to truly evangelize others and tell them about Jesus. Well, if you look at our text this morning, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Verse 5. He occupied himself with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. we have made available through email different Bible reading plans and strategies for the year. You know, I, I did it two years ago. I'm doing it again this year. And the plan that we've sent out, it literally takes 20 minutes a day, five days a week. I don't normally go this hard on stuff. But as your pastor, let me admonish you Occupy yourself with the Word of God. You say, R.D., I just don't have time. Set your alarm 20 minutes earlier. You won't be any any more tired. 20 minutes isn't going to make any difference. Or redeem the time from something else. You know, look at your average daily screen use time on your iPhone app and let that humble you and convict you. You have 20 minutes a day to read your Bible. Occupy yourself with it in this new year. So that's what Paul did. He had a job, he had other things that he did, but he was notable for being occupied with the word of God. Verse 6. He sees that this gospel sharing is not overly fruitful with the Jews. And so he pivots his approach. He shakes the dust off. What does that mean? Well, to shake the dust off means that he absolved himself of any further responsibility to these people. He had faithfully discharged his conscience. He had told them the Christ is Jesus. He labored among them in their synagogue for an extended period of time. And he reached a point where he said, that's it. So now with some unkind words on the way out in verse 6, he pivots. And he focuses attention on the Gentiles. Look at verses 7 to 8. He's no doubt discouraged with the fruitlessness of the gospel ministry with the Jews in Corinth. But now he's about to be encouraged in two different ways. Look at the first way that he's encouraged. There's the conversion of these two men. Titius, Justus and Crispus. Titius Justus, we're told, is a God-fearer. He's a Gentile. He's more than likely quite wealthy. And Crispus is a Jew, also a wealthy man. You see, Paul would have been encouraged by the fact that the gospel was at work in Corinth and people were being saved. I can't tell you how encouraging it is for me to see people getting saved here at our church you guys have that same experience people hear the gospel and they're saved they're born again they're converted and it does something for my spirit and for my soul i look at it and i'm like yeah it's true jesus is alive the gospel is the power of god unto salvation well that's the sort of thing that encouraged paul in corinth back then how does it apply to us well, here's the question that it sets before you. Titius, Justus, and Crispus are saved. Have you been saved? Have you ever repented? Have you ever turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Look, there's so much apparent and obvious rising evil in the world all around us right? It's it's easy for Christians to get distracted and get sucked into all kinds of rabbit holes and flight lists, right? Or you're like, this is just insanity. What is a Christian response? Well, a Christian response is not to get sucked down those rabbit holes, but to hold to our central message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the rising darkness, to call people to repentance, Titius' justice are saved. Crispus is saved. Have you ever been saved? That's the remedy. So the first thing Paul is encouraged by is the fact that people are being saved. The second thing, look at verses 9 to 10. He's further encouraged by a vision from the Lord himself. So the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him in verses 9 and 10 and with Three promises encourages Paul in his ministry. Look at those three promises. The first one, he says, I am with you. The second one is, no man shall harm you. And the third one, I have many people in this city. What glorious promises from the Lord Jesus Christ. The first promise that Jesus gives to Paul is the promise of his presence. You know, this is something that makes Christianity unique among other world religions. So many world religions have gods who are aloof and disconnected at best, maybe even capricious against human beings. They they are ill-tempered, right? But in the gospel, we find a God who is present with us in our hardship. He's not unmoved by the feelings of our infirmities. And that's what Jesus told Paul. He said, Be encouraged, Paul, I'm with you. Well, maybe that's a word for someone here this morning. The second encouragement that he gives him is that no man shall harm him. Now, that's a very specific promise. You'll notice that Jesus didn't say to Paul, No harm shall come to you. That's a different thing. Why, Paul already at this point, has been whipped and flogged, left for dead. He's about to be shipwrecked. Harm will come to him. So what is Jesus promising? Jesus is promising that no man will harm you. He's saying to Paul, there is nothing that will befall you apart from coming through my hand, and therefore it will be redeemed, and therefore it will be used for good. You will never be subject to the malevolence merely of another human being. No man will hurt you. Well, the third promise, he says, I have many people in this city. What a glorious promise of fruitfulness and friendship. You know, the Lord said to Paul, I have many people in this city in Corinth. And the Lord is saying to us, I have many people here in the city of Burlington. These are sheep. Of the Good Shepherd's fold. That's why Paul could, with confidence, go out then into Corinth and preach the gospel for a year and a half. Because he knew that there were many people who already belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whom God had placed his affection on from before the foundation of the world, those whom the Son had purchased with his shed blood. Jesus reminded Paul. That all he had to do was preach the gospel and my sheep hear my voice. The Holy Spirit would cause them to respond with repentance. What a wonderful encouragement. So Paul's encouraged with the new converts. He's encouraged with this vision. Verse 11, he goes on to spend 18 months teaching the word of God. Final thing, verses 12 to 17. We've looked at the gospel with Priscilla and Aquila. We've looked at the gospel of the Gentiles. I want now just to look at the gospel and the state. Man, there's so much that can and should be said about that. I'm not going to take time to do it all this morning. I just want us to stick with the text. Look at verse 12. There's this man named Gallio. We're told that he's the proconsul in the area in Corinth. Again, External historians tell us that he is the son of the famous orator Seneca the Elder. Has ever heard of Seneca the Elder, the famous orator? He's the brother to the great Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger. He he is a politician and he has this brief stint as proconsul in Corinth. Verses 12 to 13, the um, Jews... Bring charges against Paul before Gallio. And the charge is this. They say to Gallio, This man, Paul, is persuading people to worship in a way that is against the law. Verses 14 to 15. Gallio doesn't even let Paul speak. He immediately renders a verdict on the spot. And he says this. He says, There is. No wrongdoing or vicious or fraudulent crime. This is merely an in-house debate. Deal with it yourselves. He refuses to weigh in. Oh, for more leaders like Gallio. You see, the, the West was founded on one of these principles, the separation of church and state. And and here Gallio actually gets it right. He models something for us that's very important. The separation of church and state means that the state stays out of the affairs of the church. It doesn't mean that the church stays out of the affairs of the state. Because all the while that Gallio is saying, hey, you guys deal with that yourselves, I'm not getting involved. All the while, the gospel is at work, flipping the empire on its ear. Isn't that interesting? Verses 16 to 17. So, the account of the end of Paul's second missionary journey is coming to a close. He's about to return to Antioch in these next verses. And this second missionary journey closes with a grim glimpse of human character and nature without the gospel. And it's mob justice. Gallio dismisses the accusers from his court, verse 16, tells them to go away. And in verse 17, the mob then lay hold of one of those accusers of Paul, a man named Sosthenes. Sosthenes, we're told, is the ruler of the synagogue. Now, you guys are clever. You guys are going to say, wait a second, R.D., I thought Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, right, from a few verses ago. And the answer is yes. Paul has been in Corinth for a year and a half, and so there's been a transition in the ruler of the synagogue. It was Crispus, and now it's Sosthenes. And this act of anti-Semitic hate, the mob that had gathered laid hold of Sosthenes for bringing charges against Paul and beat him mercilessly. So Galio is not a perfect ruler. Where he was wise in keeping his nose out of the business of the church, he fails to enforce good godly laws to restrain evil. And so ends Paul's second missionary journey. He has, on this second missionary journey, taken the gospel as far as Corinth. But we know that the gospel didn't stop there. Paul will take a third missionary journey. We're going to pick that up next week. And the gospel will go even further because it's going to go all the way around the world through time, and it's going to reach people like you and me this unstoppable force for good, the gospel will move forward until the Lord Jesus returns for his own. And so the gospel comes to you today. This message of God's love for you in Jesus. But I would be remiss as a preacher if I only told you about God's love. Where you see in the Gospel of John, for example, there is but one place in 21 chapters where it speaks of the Gospel in terms of God's love. John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. One place, 21 chapters. In all the rest of the places in John's Gospel where The gospel is presented. It's not presented primarily in terms of God's love. It's presented in terms of repentance. The gospel comes to you this morning with the invitation to repent. Change your life. And you know, friend, we say it almost every week. If that seems even remotely attractive to you, that's the Holy Spirit at work causing you to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the faithful witness of men like Paul. But I pray that this morning, by your spirit, you would renew our confidence in and trust in your word. that your convicting and assuring spirit would allow us to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and to believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead and so be saved. We pray this in your name. Amen.